Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job isn't just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CDC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Nearly a third of the companies in the S&P 500 report earnings this week, and the averages just keep climbing. Dow gaining 11 points today. S&P itself climbing 0.11 to a new all-time high, and the Nasdaq advancing 0.19%. That's a potentially toxic combination. You heard me. Toxic. Here at Man Money, we're always in favor of higher stock prices because you make more money when the market goes up, but there's one exception. It's really counterproductive for stocks to run up into earnings. At best, it's confusing. A company reports a good quarter, but its stock sells off because investors want to take profits. Many people mistakenly conclude that there must be something wrong with the results. At worst, it can be devastating. If your stock rallies into the quarter and the results are genuinely bad, it does set you up for a horrific decline. i got a couple of them in my head right now. So with the earnings coming hot and heavy this week and the S&P at all-time highs, I want you to understand how this expectation game plays out because it's probably the hardest game for most home gamers to understand. So let's start with the most visible that we all know. Let's start with Apple. Yes, they're put tomorrow. You know I like Apple, right? And I like it when it goes higher. But man, oh man, this thing has run up endlessly since the last quarter. Right now, the analysts adore it. People, that's a bad setup. There's too much positivity, not enough bears left who can convert into bulls, giving us the fuel that can push this stock ever higher. When I was recommending Apple 50 points ago, right, the 30 points ago, there were still lots of skeptics left. They could be turned into true believers. But with so many analysts recommending a stock here, I just see a ton of camp followers itching to use this quarter as a reason to downgrade. These are people who regard Apple's service revenue stream, that's the future of the company, by the way, as a nuisance to forecast at best or a total distraction at worst. They they only care about their near-term earnings models, and those models depend on iPhone sales, not service revenue or even AirPods or Apple Watch. If Apple were trading 184 here rather than, say, 204, there'd be plenty of room for some upgrades, some price target bumps after a good quarter. However, at these levels, even though Apple's cheap as a stock, even though it's a fabulous company, I expect the stock to get hit. Now, listen, nothing's changed for me. My mantra is the same. Own it, don't trade it. But if the numbers look strong and the stock sells off anyway, well, at least you understand why. Think of it like Disney. Here's something that's pretty obvious to all of us in this country. Everybody presumed the new Avengers movie would break records, right? So when it had the largest opening weekend of all time, well, hey, it broke a record. If you expected Disney's stock to rally on the good news today, you missed the fact that stock already had a monster run into the premiere. That's why last week I was practically begging people not to pay up for this one today because you were almost guaranteed to lose money. Sure enough, it got dinged today. You should expect the same thing from Apple. If you don't own it already, I may, maybe wait till the uh, next after the quarter, because I think you'll get a better buying opportunity when people start taking profits. Of course, there's a flip side to this. 
When a stock dips going into the quarter, well, you can have a great setup. It doesn't have to be a big dip. As a matter of fact, I just want some breathing room. And that's what we saw with both Facebook and Amazon. Both stocks have been red hot, but then they took enough of a head right before the reports that they were able to rally without getting a slew of downgrade perfection. Hey, let me give you the best example I've seen so far this year is Hasbro. Going into the earnings season, the expectations for this toy maker were incredibly low. Hasbro had disappointed too many times. And while the problems weren't of the same of their making, not at all, the whole industry was slammed by excess inventory thanks to the liquidation of Toys R Us, most investors had just simply run out of patience. Even though CEO Brian Goldner kept coming on this show and patiently explaining that the problems were temporary, no one cared. Oh, that is the ideal, perfect setup. I mean, just shakingly great. When Hasbro shot the lights out, the stock caught a series of upgrades, and now the newly bullish analysts serve as trampolines every time the stock pulls back. Ideal. Okay, let's see the reverse of Hasbro. Look at 3M, which we'll have on the show later. Leading up to earnings, 3M stock had been rallying gingerly on nothing new. Between the last quarter, which was only so-so, and the latest quarter, the stock tacked on roughly 25 points. So when 3M reported a genuine disappointing number, both a shortfall and a forecast cut, the stock plunged nearly 13% in a single day, which is a huge decline for a $100 billion company. The run-up into the quarter gave the bears tons of extra ammo. I predict more pain for 3M, given how hard it will be to turn the ship around. But you know what? Let's see what Mike Roman has to say before we jump to any conclusions. And then there's the textbook, Alphabet. The stock of Alphabet, which used to be known as Google when it was a red-hot growth vehicle, have been rallying like crazy going into tonight's quarterly report. It's up 10% this month, or was up 10% this month. Talk about a horrendous setup. So when it missed on revenues, they took it out and just shot it as a massacre. Another classic worst-case scenario. Although the pattern of Alphabet stock is to get pummeled on earnings and then spend the next three months rallying until it gets pummeled on earnings again. It's the Sisyphus of modern growth stocks. We saw a similar ramp in a stock of Intel ahead of its quarter last week. I figured somebody had to know something. That stock kept going up and up and up. Well, it turned out they did nothing. Turns out Intel's core data center and personal computer business, they weren't so hot. Be diplomatic about it. Stock lost 9% a day. I think the run-up into the quarter has left a real stink around this one. I don't see Intel mounting a comeback anytime soon, especially if the chief rival AMD tells a good story when it reports this week. And we realize maybe that Intel's problems are Intel-specific and not customer-specific. No, all that said, it's possible to overcome the expectations game. Some of the cloud kings, ServiceNow, VMware, they've just managed to rally and rally. They go rally into the quarter and they rally after the quarter. Same thing with the unstoppable PayPal. But that's hardly universal. As a matter of fact, it's pretty much the opposite. Consider the pullbacks in the stock say of Salesforce and Workday after they've run. Axiomatic. Bottom line, please be careful what you wish for. We don't want stocks to go higher every single day into a quarter. A gentle dip ahead of earnings can be the best vaccination against a sell-off. While a stock that comes in too high, like Alphabet, that's like a jet landing on an aircraft carrier. They can often miss the decks and end up getting obliterated, as 3M did last week. And Alphabet is done this very night. Bob in New York. Bob! Hey, Jim, um, question. Based on the Lyft IPO fiasco, yeah. how do you view the $500 million that PayPal is investing in Uber? What are the risks to PayPal investors, and is this also a way to play the Uber IPO? Okay, well, Uber IPO, we have to see where it is. Now, uh, you know, something you have to understand about Uber, and a lot of people feel like, well, Jim, you let us down on Lyft. Oh, give me a break. Lyft was going to open at 100 I was thrilled it didn't. Uh, I didn't know that you could sell stock if you owned it before the uh, 
uh, IPO. That's, uh, if you bought it right before the IPO, you could sell it. That was very unusual. Uh, I don't know yet where Uber's going to price. That's going to matter. But a lot of retail investors are being given Uber ahead. That's not a good sign. PayPal itself, the stock has just been unstoppable. Dan Schulman doing a great job. Check them with the company this weekend. Everything seems very strong there. I would not worry about any investment they make. I would just try to figure out, has the stock gotten too hot? That's what I'm worried about. But it seems like it hasn't. Undervalued fintech. Brad in Massachusetts. Brad! Jim, I got a position in Occidental. With the undergoing discussions, uh, should I be concerned about more downside? I think Occidental's going to get it. I think Vicki Halb has been expressing uh, the most, uh, I'd say, vociferous ways that she is going to get Anadarko. Uh, my travel trust owns it. Uh, I am thinking that maybe this is about as good as it gets. Uh, Occidental may be overpaying because, remember, Chevron had the firepower to buy anything. I don't think Chevron, Chevron may not go higher. I, I don't know if you checked the rhetoric. I thought that they might, but wow, Vicki Holub, CEO of Occidental, I, I don't think she could be stopped, even though Chevron could certainly stop her if they wanted to. Chris in Florida, Chris. Hi, Jim. Uh, booyah. Booyah. Uh, Bristol, uh, Bristol Myers. I've been listening to you for a long time, but the last couple of uh, weeks, uh, the early bird catches the worm. Buy something ahead of time. Is Bristol Myers my worm? I have to tell you, Bristol Myers, everybody told me I'm all washed up here, 45, 46, saying to buy it. But, you know, I think that Giovanni's got himself like a powerful combo with Celgene. The numbers will be there. He'll be able to take that cash and do more things with it. I say, buy, buy, buy. Bristol Myers. All right, we're in the thick of earnings season, and gaming is no easy task. Be careful what you wish for. I am here to help you out, but if your stock is ramping into the quarter, well, let's just say, I'll make money tonight. I'm revisiting my 5G recommendations because I know you care about 5G, telling you which companies to consider in the ever-evolving space. Then 3M just had its worst day since the crash in 87. Tonight, I'm sitting down with the CEO. I know you've been asking about it. Get to the bottom of that report. And are volatility markets flashing a warning sign to stocks like they were last February in 2018? I've got your VIX fix, and tonight's off the charts. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day, clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. We've always, always, always been on the lookout for powerful secular themes, the kind of long-term themes that can give you fabulous multi-year gains. So as long as you uh, push them correctly. And right now, one of the biggest themes out there is 5G. The next generation wireless technology is currently being rolled out all over the globe, a process that will take years. Whenever you find a good story like this, uh, well, you, you got to stick with it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you should play it with the same stocks the whole way through. Remember, it's not buy and hold, it's buy and homework here. 
You need to do the homework to make sure you own the best names. A little less than three months ago, I gave you the whole rundown of 5G and told you my favorite picks. However, there's been a lot of major developments since then, as there often is. So why don't we just kind of update where we are? And I've made some, I'd say, I don't want to call them blunders, but I got some wrong, I got some right. Let's go over them because I don't like them. Let me get you up to speed. There are a bunch of different ways to play the 5G build-out. But we'll start with the telco equipment place because they're the most obvious. In early February, I recommended both Ericsson and Nokia, the two European telco equipment makers, because I thought they seemed poised to take major market share from their Chinese competitors. Sure, China definitely has better and less expensive technology. But the U.S. government's pressuring our allies to keep China out of their 5G infrastructure. So I thought Ericsson and Nokia would both be natural winners. Recommended both. Told you that Nokia was the more attractive of the two. And at least in the last three months, I got it backwards. Since that piece, Ericsson stock's up 13, 13%, Nokia stock's down 12%. What happened? A month ago, Finland's data protection regulator announced that they'd be looking into whether Nokia-branded phones had breached privacy rules. Allegedly that they were sending data to China, which is not great when the whole thesis is that Nokia's products are less likely to be spying for China. Nokia stock got slammed on the news. But here's the thing. Nokia hasn't made a cell phone since 2014. Nokia-branded phones are actually made by a company called HMD Global. Nokia itself is a pure play on telco equipment, has been for years, yet the sellers didn't seem to care. Aberration? Then, when both companies reported in the past couple of weeks, Ericsson told a better story, delivering a, a fabulous top and bottom line beat, 7% sales growth versus the previous quarter. Stock jumped 7% on the news. Nokia, on the other hand, gave you mixed numbers, better than expected sales, but slightly worse than expected earnings. On the conference call, the CEO flat out told you, and I quote, Q1 was a weak quarter for Nokia, end quote. Stock plunged 8% response, even as management assured us that business would get better as the 5G rollout continued. Okay, so where do you put this at this point? Ericsson's clearly executing better than Nokia. That said, Nokia now is a much cheaper stock. It trades at 13 times next year's earnings assessments versus more than 18 for Ericsson. Nokia's paying you to wait. It's got a 4.2% dividend. I like it. But if you want best of breed, Ericsson's the way. And if you want a value stock that's got a nice dividend, Nokia's the way. I expect rising 5G, 5G tied to lift all boats. Next up, there are the 5G semiconductor companies. The last time we covered this story, I highlighted Skyworks, Qualcomm, Intel, Broadcom, Xilinx. So far, Qualcomm's pole vaulted 71% thanks to that fabulous settlement with Apple. Broadcom's gained 13%. Xilinx up 2.5%. Skyworks has tacked on 2.5%. Even Intel's up 2.4%. There have been uh, some major changes here. Originally, I liked them all, but I told you Skyworks was my favorite because it's cheap and has a tremendous amount of 5G exposure. But some of these are ripe for reassessment. Qualcomm's had the most seismic shift. The communications chipmaker has the best 5G offering, and they'll likely be virtually in every 5G phone. Uh, but they had a bitter lawsuit with Apple, which was going after them for monopolistic pricing. When Qualcomm reached a settlement with Apple two weeks ago, along with the deal to supply Apple with chips for the next six years, the stock soared into the stratosphere. Not only did this remove a major overhang, also gave us a lot of visibility into Qualcomm's sales for years to come. Now, even though the stock has run from 58 to 86 in a matter of weeks, Qualcomm is far from expensive. Still sells for just 15 times earnings. I like that. I think it's a hold, though. Uh, we got to see what they have to say when the company reports on Wednesday. How about Skyworks? The radio frequency chips power all sorts of connected devices. There's going to be huge demand for them as more and more phones are built to handle 5G. The stock's been trading sideways since I pounded the table on it in February. It doesn't matter. I think it's a phenomenal long-term story, and it doesn't hurt that stock sells at just 12 times earnings estimates. Skyworks reports on Thursday night. I expect them to tell a good story. But if the company stumbles and the stock gets hit, bye, bye, bye. Then there's Broadcom, fantastic company, run by the great hot tan. Broadcom is far from a pure play on 5G, but they do have some exposure, 
And the company's in terrific shape. They reported a huge earnings beat in mid-March. You don't buy Broadcomfort's 5G exposure, which doesn't really start to move the needle until next year or later. You buy it for Hoctan's track record and the amazing margin expansion we're now seeing thanks to his acquisition of CA. It looks like it worked. Intel tougher. When the semiconductor kingpin reported last week, guidance was tepid. Stock got obliterated. Down 9% on Friday. I knew Intel had execution issues, but I didn't realize they were this bad. There was a lot to dislike here. For our purposes, though, you need to know that Intel's admitting defeat getting out of the 5G modem business. I think the competition's eating them live. Stock isn't even cheap. Hard pass. Finally, there's the toughest one of all, which is Xilinx, X-L-N-X. That's the make of programmable logic devices. That's chips that can be customized uh, as needed by each customer. And they're making a bundle from 5G deployments. I told you it was high risk, but also high reward. So it's no wonder the stock has become a roller coaster. Xilinx roared from 114 when I recommended to to 141 last Wednesday. Then the company reported, while the quarter itself was a, I'd say, call it a, uh, was fine. A modest top and bottom line beat. Management's commentary was actually less than seller and made an acquisition people didn't like. Solar flare. Wall Street didn't seem to be thrilled about this thing at all. And the stock lost 17% of its value last Thursday. It's now back to 117. You know what? It's attractive here. But if you're going to own a wild trader like Silence, you need to be prepared to sell the rips. Buy the dips. Bottom line, if you want to play the 5G rollout or any other huge secular trend, you need to keep doing the homework. You've got to keep finding the right stocks, which is exactly why I'm trying to keep you up on the, to date on this story. And we'll continue to do so because we all know that 5G is the future. Mac in Louisiana. Mac. Big booyah from New Orleans, Jeff. Yes. I turned 27 today. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and also I read your book, Get Rich Carefully. Oh, thank you very uh, much. Well, me and my dad can't agree on this one. He, he likes AT&T, but uh, I like Verizon uh, with, uh, with the recent earnings. I, I, look, I, I tell you, I, Mac, I never want to contradict uh, your dad, but I have to tell you that Verizon's got a better balance sheet, and you'd be reaching for yield to, to own ATT. Let's go with Verizon, and I think that that will be the safer name. 5G is a big, ever-revolving, and involved story. Homework is key when it comes to these themes. That's why we do it for you. Much more may have money ahead. 3M stock tumbled the most in decades on poor earnings. But could the company, uh, say, tape together a turnaround? I'm crunching the numbers with the CEO. Then, is this market settling in for a sustained rally, or is there more instability ahead? we got to go off the charts to find out. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. For generations, countless products that you need could be spelled M-M-M. An earnings miss has left investors fleeing for the exits. Are the glory days of 3M an industrial relic? Or can a new CEO turn this household classic into a long-run winner? We got a ton of earnings reports last week, but some of them were more remarkable than others, and not necessarily in a good way. Take 3M, the big diversified industrial conglomerate, which delivered a substantial top and bottom line miss that led to a nearly 13% plunge in its stock last Thursday. So what the heck happened? And is there a way the company can turn things around? And how fast can they do it? Let's take a closer look with Michael Roman. He's the CEO of 3M. Get a better sense of what's happening here. It's easy to come on the air when everything's going right. But it takes a real grit to come on when the knives are out for you and your company. Mr. Roman, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, Mike. Thank you. Have a seat. Thank you. Most people, when they uh, don't deliver a quarter, they don't. They're not objective at the beginning. You were, and I salute you at the conference. You said, "Look, 
the end markets weren't that good and they got weaker, but you were disappointed in yourself and your execution. I know you said that you have a playbook to turn things around. Why should we have the conviction that this is 3M, the blue chip that we should buy? Yeah, Jim, first of all, thank you for having me on today. It's just a great opportunity to talk about the situation we face. And let me start with what I said at the beginning of my earnings call. We are disappointed in the quarter that we delivered for 3M. And and it really was driven by some challenges we faced in several end markets that we have been talking about for some time. Right. And the declines in those end markets, China, automotive, electronics, you know, accelerated as we went through February, March. And while we took actions to get ahead of those challenges, we didn't do enough to offset it. And, and our execution led to weak productivity as the way we termed it. And so we are taking action. Okay, and- so give me a sense because you said you didn't respond aggressively enough to what you were seeing. Uh, so you were behind the curve, but you also said that you know how to get out of these situations and improve, and 3M has a history of turning things around if it struggles. Yeah, and this is, this is a playbook we know how to do. Okay. When markets soften, when macro softens, you know, we lead into it. We see it in our end markets. We see it in our channel as they react to it, but we know how to take costs down with that, and, and we were behind the curve in what we were doing to take costs down in Q1. The actions we're taking now get us ahead of that curve. That's what we're executing, get ahead of the curve. All right, well, what do you say to people after the stock's 30-point plunge, which we know was the worst since 1987, who looked at you as having a core portfolio position that's defensive with growth? It doesn't seem that the stock can be all that defensive if it could lose 30 points in a day. Yeah, part of our defensive position has been our ability to take actions that keep us paced with what we're seeing in the end markets. And and that is, you know, that is what we have to get around and get ahead of as we go in the next quarter. Our portfolio, if you're, if you're talking about our portfolio and how it's positioned, you know, in this case, we had three key end markets, which are really attractive parts of our portfolio long term, mm-hmm. but challenged near term. So you gotta, you've got to execute to protect right. those, those attractive markets near term. And we've got to drive the, the 3M value model across the broader portfolio. All right. When I was a little boy, my father would come home with what he was repping for 3M and say, look at this. They invented Sashin. I can go sell Sashin, which is a great ribbon product. The 3M I know from when I was a little boy is the company that invents and innovates. Are there things in the pipeline that can move the needle, make it, more, make it so that even though the end markets aren't that good, you are going to triumph via innovation? Yeah, absolutely. The 3M model is strong. And, okay. and what we're doing in our portfolio to drive you know, innovation, and, and our first priority is driving you know, new innovation that leads to growth and premium returns for, for 3M and our shareholders. We have a great portfolio for that. We're well aligned. We're taking an active management of our portfolio, which means prioritizing where we get the greatest return on our organic growth. And we have some priority growth programs that are very exciting and, and really gaining good traction as but we go. Are there some uh, elements of this great diversified company that maybe aren't working in this new world? You, you see what Darius Damchek did. He, mm-hmm. gets, he gets Dave Cody's hand over at Honeywell, and then he gets rid of a bunch of companies. It makes it stronger. We know that Greg Hayes makes it stronger. 3M has always been yeah. equal, if not better, than these companies. And you and I both know that. You've been at 3M for yeah. a long time. Are there things, are there radical actions that you need to take? Yeah, and Jim, we are an active portfolio right. manager. It starts with where we target our, our organic growth, but we also look to make acquisitions that will complement what we do. The things that we differentiate ourselves with are what we call our value model, right. our technology, our manufacturing, our vertically integrated manufacturing capabilities, and we will prioritize those opportunities. At the same time, we look continuously across the entire portfolio 
looking to maximize value right. up to and including divestitures like we did with our communication markets division right. in 2018. Okay, so November analyst meeting, pretty bullish. January, pretty bullish. How could things have gotten this bad this fast? Are there other underpinnings, Michael, that you have discovered that make you think, because you were regarded as a thoughtful, excellent manager, mm-hmm. make you think that maybe the hand wasn't as good that you got when you started? If you look at back to Q1, it, it really was those three end markets. There's okay. a majority of what we faced into. It's 30% of our revenue in automotive electronics in China. And that challenge hit us, you know, hit us in top line and bottom line as we went through the quarter. Uh-huh. But automotive was down nine. That was worse than the other. Illinois right. Tool Works, right. worse than a bunch of the companies that Lear that are OEM providers. Wrong, wrong part of the car. As we came through the quarter, automotive and I would say electronics in China saw similar dynamics. Okay. The end market decline accelerated. This was the OEM demand. Kind of right. think of it as the OEM equipment. demand. Right. The channel reacted, and so we're serving those those. Those customers through channel, they reacted, they took out inventory. So we saw a multiplier in the quarter in, in automotive, in electronics, and, and a little broader in China. So that was a, a headwind. And that settles out pretty quickly. The channels adjust and they Okay, that's they important react. because I'm trying to figure out whether to tell people, look, it's got a good yield, it's got a good balance sheet, maybe this is the level you get involved, or maybe you have to wait. Yeah, this, you know, that it'll depend on end market demand. Okay. So we lead into challenges like this, we lead out okay. that playbook that we know how to execute and, and getting ahead of the curve mm-hmm. with our execution and, and our cost, you know, cost reductions, we will get in line. We'll lead back out of this as the end markets recover. And, and uh, you know, the inventory, you know, it, it works the other way, right. too. They've got to restock as they go forward. Okay, when I went through the annual, uh, I get all the way down to the end. On page 100, there's this note 16, which talks about this PFAS mm-hmm. problem. It's a, a groundwater contamination problem. You paid $850 million to settle with Minnesota AG. And in the annual note 16, it says there's litigation in Alabama, Michigan, Ohio, Delaware, Maine, New Jersey. That's a lot of litigation. Can it be ring-fenced? Should viewers who own 3M, of which there are many, you know that, be concerned that you can't confine this exposure? Yeah, so the, the reserve that we took, it was around what the litigation we face in our manufacturing disposal of chemistries that we phased out of more than a decade ago. Yeah. And, and we had now enough visibility on negotiations around our manufacturing sites, three in the U.S. and, and two in Europe, that we could estimate, I mean, it was estimable and probable what we faced in the direct litigation on those manufacturing facilities. So we, we have taken a reserve against that. And, and that, you know, that we're careful to say that doesn't include the product liability that, that we face right. with, with PFAS products. All right, one last question. You are the steward of a great American company, and this was a very tough quarter, and I'm thrilled you came here. But I wonder whether the problems uh, maybe take a year, and that that's okay, because they may be deeper than we think, and you know, the way Honeywell turned around, mm-hmm. or is it just something you just say, you know what, knows the grindstone, and people will be rewarded in 2019 if they stick with Mike Roman. Yeah, well, the aggressive actions we're taking to get ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. we'll do that in many ways, and what, what we're doing in our operational costs and realigning our manufacturing to the yeah. demand that we see in the end markets, we get on top of that pretty quickly. Within second quarter, don't need we'll a breakup. Don't you just stick with your knitting and yep. you'll come through. And that's execution. That, our team right. knows how to respond. I was with our, our team last week. I went out with all the employees. I went out with our leadership team. They have great sense of urgency. They're jumping on it. They understand what they have to do. We'll get ahead of this as, as we go through the quarter and into the rest of the year. Some of the, 
some of the restructuring will take longer to play out. That'll take time, and that'll be more towards the end of this year. All right, fair enough. I really appreciate you coming. I know it was a very tough week for you and your shareholders, and I think it's terrific that you came. Jim, thanks a lot. The 3M value model is strong. We'll, we'll lead out of it. That's what I wanted to hear. Okay. okay, that's Michael Roman, CEO of 3M. Of course, make your own judgments. Thank you so much, Michael. May have money Jim, back after the break. Thank you very much. Over the weekend, a Bloomberg piece raised some hackles when they reported something that sounded, back to me, a little ominous. Hedge funds are shorting the VIX at a rate never seen before. Yep, when it comes to the CBOE volatility index, a.k.a. the VIX, the ratio of shorts to longs is back at its highs, meaning lots of money managers are betting against the so-called fear gauge. Now, why is that frightening? (laughs) Remember? Because at the beginning of last year, many hedge funds had made big bets against volatility, and it caused a brutal sell-off in the stock market in February. When their anti-VIX bets went wrong, went against them, they needed to be unwound. They ended up being forced to sell large slugs of stock in order to raise capital. And it was a bloodbath. We were all impacted by it. So how worried should we be here? Oddly, maybe not too worried at all. We checked in with our resident volatility index expert, Mark Sebastian. He's a brilliant technician who's founder of OptionPit.com, as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com. And he explained that the VIX fears, they're overblown. In fact, Sebastian himself is betting against the short-term VIX futures, in his case via an exchange-traded note, the VXXB, and he thinks people are reading way too much into the Bloomberg story. I had to know more about this because it's something that worried me all weekend, so let's check his thesis. First of all, yes, the volatility index has retreated to a low level, 13 and change. As the S&P 500 has roared higher over the past four months, record high today, the VIX has steadily worked its way lower, and that's what's supposed to happen. But looking at this Bloomberg headline, you might think that these people shorting the VIX are pushing their luck. Hey, what's the difference between uh, luck and a wheelbarrow? Only one of them works when you push it. However, Sebastian says it's a little more complicated than that. We're not seeing the kind of reckless betting against the VIX that imperiled the whole stock market in early 2018. This is really something very different. For starters, these traders aren't selling the actual volatility index. They're selling the VIX futures, very different. And VIX futures tend to trade at a premium to the volatility index itself. Check out this chart, which shows the price VIX futures, uh, the price VIX futures going out to January of 2020. You know, it's kind of an interesting chart because it tells you a lot of what's about to happen, I think. Um, it plotted against where the volatility index is currently trading. For example, the May VIX future is currently at about 1435. Uh, with the actual VIX only at 13.05. Okay, that's a disparity. That's a premium spread of about a point and a half. That's okay. The futures contract expires on May 22nd. So between now and then, one of the three, three things has to happen. The VIX itself could rally to 14.35. Okay. And because the VIX is calculated uh, based on the price of options for the S&P 500, we need to see a big increase in put buying, likely in conjunction with a big sell-off. But if the stock market stays strong or at least stable, the VIX futures will gradually fall to where the VIX itself is trading uh, over the next three weeks. Or there could be a third option. They meet in the middle with the volatility index rallying a bit and futures pulling back a bit. And Sebastian thinks that's the most likely scenario. One that reflects the stock market where investors get a little more cautious. You would certainly think that after what happened with Alphabet tonight. Let's drill down even further. Take a look at these pair of charts showing the volatility index on top and the action in the May VIX future on the bottom. I know it's complex, but this is really important. If we had done this February of last year, it would have made us or saved us a lot of money. In the past month or so, the May future has fallen from 17.2 down to 14. While the VIX itself is pulled back from 1660 to uh, 12, uh, 12.13. Sebastian points out that the futures contract has fallen more slowly than the index it's pegged to, which is how these things normally work. 
You'd expect the May future to gradually decay as we get closer to its expiration date. That's why he's not sweating the fact that there are a lot more people trying to short the VIX futures than there are people trying to go long. Despite all the hand-wringing about early 2018, it doesn't mean stocks are about to implode this time. Remember, the futures are not the only way to play the volatility index. The big breakdown last year happened because tons of money managers had bought various exchange-traded products and options on those that were extremely short the VIX futures, instruments like the XIV, the SVXY. Before the big blow-up, the futures were net short by about 700,000 contracts. Right now, we're net short by less than 500,000. Especially says it's pretty normal. So uh, what's actually going on here? Let's go back to the first chart showing the price of VIX futures through the rest of the year. You'll notice that while there's a steep spread between the volatility index and May and June and July, after that, the curve becomes extremely flat. What does that mean? The August contract is 16.47. The December's at, 16, it, December's at 16.93. What's that mean? Well, according to Sebastian, it's a sign that there's a lack of long-term hedging using VIX futures. There's just not that much demand for them from portfolio managers. Does that mean we're in good shape? Well, not necessarily. Let's take a gander Sebastian's favorite pair of charts, the S&P 500 uh, versus the volatility index. Since the middle of April, the S&P has been rallying. Okay, pretty obvious, right? Uh, and so is the VIX. Okay, and that is a problem. When the fear gauge in the stock market trade in the same direction, up and up, that often means we are due for a pullback. That's exactly what happened when we got hit in March, okay? We had this go up, and we had this go up, okay? So it's a very similar pattern. In other words, this actually makes Sebastian want to prepare for a sell-off. But he says it's going to be a garden-variety sell-off. Meanwhile, there's also the VIX volatility index, or the VIVIX for short, which measures the volatility index, uh, volatility of the VIX index itself. Think of it as kind of taking a derivative of the VIX. Even you can, can you remember that from calculus? It was hard. When you look at the chart of the S&P compared to the VIVIX, you can see that the latter has been peppier. And Sebastian says that isn't a great sign either. He thinks it means the market might need a breather. However, another wrinkle here, it's possible the VIX has been rising precisely because of the lack of long-term hedgers that we saw in the futures chart. Maybe this is all of a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Thank you, Shakespeare. Put it all together, and while the fear gauge seems to be signaling that the rally could be getting tired, Sebastian doesn't see any signs of imminent doom, which is quite different from the narrative that I heard all weekend. Bottom line, when you see a headline that says hedge funds are shorting the VIX at a rate never seen before, it's easy to freak out, as I did, that everybody's getting way too complacent, like they did at the beginning of last year. But the charges interpreted by Mark Sebastian suggest that something else is going on here. While while he thinks you might want to be prepared for a modest pullback, he actually doesn't see anything super worrisome in the VIX action, which sure did make me feel better, since this was something that occupied a lot of my weekend. Man, money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light! And then the light round's over. Are you ready? Skid! Guys, over the light round. Let's start with David in Illinois. David! Big booyah, Jim, from Justice, Illinois. Wow, what's up? Hey, Jim, I've been watching you a long time. Maybe even the first time when you were with Mark Haynes. Oh, wow, yeah. Wow. Even before Cuddle and Kramer. True! True that! What's up? Okay, would you swap out an Entergy ETR and buy a telephone? No, Entergy's terrific. It's been a big winner. I think he continues to win. I like that company very much. I need to go to Dennis in Michigan. Dennis! Dennis, you're up. Oh, Rhett! It's Rhett in Delaware. Rhett! Hey, Jim. Hey, Hey, Rhett. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Awesome. You're you're seeing an Iron Man with the best, by the way. 
just have to say that. Um, I have my son here. He's uh, Charlie, and he's six, and he's got a question. He's got a stock for you. Um, okay. Me and your dad, um, watch your show every day. It's good, great to be on. We want to learn about nature NBCR. Wow. Hey, you know, some things that happen in a day are very hard, and then you get a call like that, and the, the day's not so hard after all. Thank you. Novacure is a good company. Uh, I don't understand why it's independent. I think that one of these big drug companies or farming or device companies should just go buy it because it's got great technology, and it, it, the technology works. Dennis in Michigan. Dennis. Hey, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. You Much bet. Appreciate it. Of course. Maritime Petroleum, MPC. Best of the best. Company really knows what it's doing. Inexpensive. We got a big upgrade from some of the others today, and I think that this is still my favorite. Mike in Florida. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, ticker ZIXI, ZIX Corporation. Yeah, email encryption. We believe in email encryption. I think it's a great theory. Remember, we're very pro cybersecurity in every way, shape, and form. Uh, How about we go to Jeff in Florida, Jeff? Hey, Booyah, Jim, how you doing? All right, how are you? Go Eagles, go Eagles, you're the best. Go Birds. Uh, question, I, I own PRTY, Party City. Should I sell this thing? I, it's yeah, it's your party, you're going to have to cry if you want to. I think you should sell that stock. I just don't see anything redeeming it. Uh, Ali in California, Ali. Hey, uh, my stock is Twilio, T-W-O. Uh, my channel trust, we keep trying to... Pull the trigger. It never comes in. We have to hope that it you know, Listen, that's a great company. Uh, Lawson's doing a great job. Let's go to uh, Martin in California. Martin. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah to you. I just wanted to say, as a young 20-year-old investor, you've helped me so much over the past few years. Yes. So thank you so much to Who you. Who says that young My people question. don't invest who just want to check their brains at the door? What's going on? Yeah. My question is about Aurora Cannabis, ticker ACB. With all the volatility in the cannabis sector, Aurora Cannabis has been kind of stuck in neutral for the past month. Where do you see the stock going from here? And do you see a good future for the company? Well, stuck in neutral. I don't want stuck in neutral. I want canopy. So I picked the- Hey, listen, I, I, I pulled up with Bruce Layton again this weekend. Uh, you know what? I just think Canopy is still best in show. I'm not wavering. Rob Sands gave him that war chest and they're using it correctly. Well, are we done or can we take more? We would like to take one more. We're going to go to Gary in Virginia. Gary. Hey, Jim, it's gone. Good to talk to you again. Yes. Hey, I got a stock for you, Levi's, L-E-V-I. Okay, there's a big short squeeze in Pinterest tonight, in Zoom, Levi's. Every one of these new IPOs is being squeezed tonight. Levi's part of it. Stock's going to go higher. And that, ladies and gentlemen, good of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Okay, here's something I know you're really focused on and you're worried about. The health insurance companies. That's right, the managed care stocks, because they've been disastrous lately. One of the few troubled sectors in otherwise totally buoyant market. But does it make sense to keep selling them? 
Right now, a lot of people are wondering if maybe, just maybe, the group is bottom. These stocks have been hammered because so many Democrats running for president want to implement single payer. But now that Joe Biden's in the race, maybe we get a more business-friendly nominee for the Democrats? But as much as I want to believe that the managed care cohort is indeed done going lower, history tells me that it might not be. That's why I want to spell out the worst-case scenario for you, for this group, so that you can figure out the potential downside and also recognize that the worst case is actually still highly unlikely in this environment. Why don't we use the stock of United Health Group, the largest player in the space, because it's the best example of what's happening here, and we'll let that be our guide. We know many of the Democratic candidates have been campaigning on what's known as Medicare for All. And even though they don't necessarily agree on what that means, a Kamala Harris Medicare for All would be very different from a Bernie Sanders Medicare for All. The fact is that they're talking about a single-payer system. Now, I'm not making a political argument. I don't do politics. Our health care system is a mess, and there are good arguments for single-payer, good arguments for keeping it as it is, good arguments for tweaking. But if Medicare for All is implemented, it would be devastating for companies like United Health. Wall Street knows that. Look at the timeline here. The Democratic candidates started formally entering the race in December. That's when people started taking this single-payer proposal thing seriously. Before then, UNH seemed safely ensconced in the 270s, looked like it was going higher. But once a considerable number of Democrats started talking about Medicare for All, right around the time, by the way, that Fed Chief Jay Powell decided to break the stock market with aggressive tightening, well, UNH's stock plunged to 231, a matter of weeks. And while it rebounded along with the rest of the market earlier this year, climbing back to 271, it's come right back down, and let's just call it a dog. How bad? Okay, we already know that Bernie Sanders wants Medicare for All. That was his platform in 2016. But this time, Warren, Booker, Harris, Buttigieg, Gillenbrand, Castro, Gabbard, all of them all support some version of Medicare for All, too. Earlier this month, Sanders rolled out his official single-payer proposal, and a week later, UNH had plunged to $208. So right after the company reported some fantastic numbers, a great quarter. Why were people so freaked out? Well, guess what? CEO David Whitman's impassioned, defensive comments about the current healthcare system when his conference call did it. Before this moment, UNH was flying high thanks to the terrific beaten race. No longer. Whitman said, and I quote, the wholesale disruption of American healthcare being discussed in some of these proposals would surely jeopardize the relationship people have with their doctors, destabilize the nation's health system, and limit the ability of clinicians to practice medicine at their best, end quote. I get why he felt the need to go on the defensive, but his shareholders really didn't want to hear that this was a possibility. So as he talked, the stock kept plummeting. And it just kept going lower when Wickman continued to press his case in the call, telling us the path forward is to achieve universal coverage, and it can be substantially reached through existing public and private platforms. Meaningful progress in healthcare lies in national and state leaders continuing to work collaboratively with the innovative and proven private sector solutions, end quote. Basically, it wants a tweaked version of the status quo, and you can understand why. The status quo has been very good for you, age. So uh, that's what's at stake here. Medicare for all versus a problematic system that has allowed UNH, Anthem, Humana, and the uh, now-acquired Cigna and Aetna to make fortunes. Those stocks have all been terrific performers since Obamacare went into law. However, I think Wall Street's fears are a little more nuanced than that. They're worried about one of the more left-wing Democratic candidates taking the White House in what's known as a wave election that also gives them the House and the Senate. Remember what happened when, Obamacare got, when Obama got a supermajority? We got Obamacare. Even though Obamacare ended up being a huge giveaway to the managed care companies, their stocks ended up being cut in half, cut in half, between the time Obama became the frontrunner and the actual election. Of course, the whole market was being obliterated by the financial crisis, but the healthcare stocks should have been, let's say, more insulated against that weakness. Now, it's important to point out that Obama's landslide victory was what created the bottom in the healthcare stocks, not the actual introduction of the Affordable Care Act, not its passage. 
Every single one of these stocks had rallied considerably, with UNH almost doubling long before the bill became law. Again, this was part of a broader rebound, but this time healthcare outperformed. The whole period from July of 2009, the introduction of the Affordable Care Act, through its passage was an incredibly benign one for the group. But of course, the Affordable Care Act ended up being written by insurance lobbyists. So by the time the bill was introduced, the managed care companies knew they had little to fear. What are the lessons here? First of all, if the Democrats win on the landslide next year and really can pass single payer, it's going to be brutal for anyone in the healthcare insurance business. If everybody becomes eligible for Medicare, why buy a policy? But there's another very important lesson here. Even if Obama had wanted to pass single payer, and by the way, he never did. He did one. He could never have gotten it through Congress. He couldn't even add a public option of Obamacare, which would have helped contain costs. And unlike 2008, there's no assurance that the Democrats will win that White House and the Senate and, you know, I mean, the House. I mean, come on. They need to run the table. That's going to be hard. And then they need to convince their own party to enact Medicare for all, which is going to be difficult because even the Democratic leadership in Congress is against it. And if they end up needing a single Republican vote, this whole plan is dead in the water. What does it mean for UNH? If we're following the 2008 playbook where the stock lost half of its value based on the erroneous perception that Obamacare would be harmful to their business, this $237 stock, worst case, goes to $145. Honestly, if UNH pulls back to post-earnings low, though, around $208, you know what? I'd say start buying. And then 10% below, I bet you bottoms. I think that's going to turn out to be a fantastic investment. Unless you believe Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders will win the nomination, then take the White House in the biggest electoral landslide since Reagan crushed Mondale. I'm betting the managed care stocks will end up doing just fine, even as they could have more downside, as everyone else works this out for themselves. I say stop the panic. These stocks may be closer to a bottom than Wall Street thinks. Stick with Kramer. season is an odd one. It's episodic. Each night is defined by one or two stocks, and then they carry over to the next day. So you will see, because of Alphabet, that the whole NASDAQ will be down. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what I call stupid. Each stock sits on its own bottom. The fact is that Alphabet was up a huge number of days going into the quarter, and I need you to think about each stock as a separate company and not a bucket. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Quaver. I'll see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.